Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, I'm Dave Hendon. This is the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm joined for another week's discussion by Michael McMullen. The big news this week is that the Crucible Almark has arrived, the new one. Ah. Now, uh, if, for those who don't know, Chris Downer is the man who puts it together. It's an extraordinary, and I do mean that, extraordinary effort. It's nearly 300 pages of stats and just you can't even begin to explain how detailed it is about the crucible years of the World Championship. And there's a pink pink section at the back as well, which is all the qualifying. It's, I, I, I genuinely can't believe there's any sporting event in the world that has a more sort of definitive record than uh, what, what Chris has done. And uh, I actually think he's, he's managed to find some new stuff this year because there's something in this year that I hadn't seen before. It's on page 152. Uh, farthest progression with negative points difference. Right? Now, just listen oh to word. this. Just listen to this. I mean, we're already right into it here. It says, every Crucible champion has outscored his opponents overall in winning the title. However, there have been five occasions where the runner-up scored fewer points than were scored against him. <laughs> Graham Dunn in 2004 Dennis Taylor in 1979 Joe Johnson in 1987 Ali Carter in 2008 Peter Ebden in 1996 no one needs to know that but we now we do know it but I'm going to throw one right at you here we've not discussed this okay I'll put this on Twitter yesterday but you're, you're not on Twitter so you probably haven't seen it okay I'm going to ask right. you a question I think you'll get this I think you'll get the answer right. um, it may not come to you immediately but you don't have to answer immediately um, okay so there haven't been that many I think there's only been eight Black ball deciders at the Crucible, you know, yeah. deciding frames. Who is the only player to have both won one and lost one? Okay. Mm. Oh, I think I know this. Well, don't, you know, final answer and all that. You know, rem- yeah. remember who was to be a millionaire. <laughs> yeah, I'm comfortable with this, actually. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, my first thought was Steve Davis, but I think with him, it's isn't he the only player to have lost two black ball finishes at the Crucible or something like that? They're Quite possible. Well, 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 that's not the question, anyway. So. Yeah, yeah, no, no, yeah. So I'm doing, I'm doing the Phil Yates thing here. I'm sorry. Yeah. I don't know the well, answer. I, answer, well, I, answer. I, I've got Mont- the answer. I think I've Mont- got it. 
Well, before you answer, Mark Selby quite often sends me little questions trying to catch me out. And, and I have to say, he's not very good at it because <laughs> I, I normally answer them. But I sent this one to him. He didn't know it. Now, he's, he's very good at these things. But uh, yeah. let's see. Go on, let's see. Let's see yeah. if you know it. I do know it. I do know. It was Terry Griffiths, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Successive years as well. That's right. Yeah, Jamie Burnett and yeah. um, then Mark. Mark Williams the next year, yeah. Yeah. So there we are. Much more is in the Crucible Almanac. Very hard to come by the Crucible Almanac. Uh, it's actually uh, it's actually used as currency in some prisons. That's how rare well, it is. I've but, got, uh, I've got to tell a great story yeah. about Chris, and you know this story sure. because you were there when yeah. it happened. We mentioned the graduate the other week. Mm. The, the pub that you know is just across from the Crucible has become the World Championship pub. Really, I mean, we were in there. I think it was maybe two or three years ago. And, Chris, and there's a jukebox kind of thing in there. And Chris came over to us. He was sitting with another group. And he said, now, see if you can spot what I've done here. I've put on, I think it was, well, it must have been seven songs in a row or something. And see if you can spot what's going on. And he was, he was fairly sure that there was no way we'd get it. And what he'd done was he'd put on, I think, seven songs. The first one had red in the title. The second one was yellow, then green and brown. And he still thought we wouldn't spot it. I think we actually spotted it on the red. I think about five seconds later, I think it was Lady in Red or something, or Red Red Wine. And we said, "Is it the snooker colours?" And I've never seen anyone so crestfallen as Chris. And, uh, but, even the next but, day, he still hadn't got over. But the thing is, what else was it going to be? I mean, it's exactly, like, yeah. like the World Snooker Championship. It's Chris Downer, this genius who's put together. I don't know if Chris listens to the podcast or not, but he's an amazing achievement, and I'm very grateful that he sent me another copy. Now then. Uh, should say this is not we're not here to talk about the Chris Lamont this week. Our main topic will be uh, well, we're basically like like politicians jumping on a bandwagon, um, which is the top ten uh, of all time list. There's some discussion last week. Barry Hearn did an interview, and then it sparked because people have got nothing to do basically. So it sparked a day on Twitter where everyone was listing their top ten players of all time. We're going to get to that in due course. Um, I mentioned last week snooker dreams. Someone had a dream they were they were shaving Kyron Wilson's head, and Kyron Wilson himself this week has tweeted that he had a dream <laughs> that involved him on a pedalo being chased by a killer whale. So, I know. So, this I don't know what that means, but I, 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 I don't even want to think about it, really. But it just shows you that people – it's a strange time, isn't it? And people are kind of losing the plot a little bit. But, but having mentioned all this last week, yeah. <laughs> I, had, I had a very strange dream that makes no sense at all. I dreamt I was playing snooker with Harold Wilson, the former British Prime Minister. And I've got to tell, I've got to tell you, his etiquette was terrible. Whenever it was my shot, he was chatting, trying to put me off. So I worked that one out. I don't know. Something about Wilson's, obviously, is uh, is the theme here. Do you know what could be going on? Well, there is a bit of that. It could also be going on. Wasn't he a Yorkshireman? Uh, yeah, I think he yeah. was, yeah. Well, well the, uh, another Yorkshireman who wanted to be prime minister but didn't quite manage it was William Hague. And, of course, you showed him round the crew. <laughs> so maybe I did. Something going on there. And the, the thing about Kyron as well, that, that story about the, the pedalo and all that, it's very reminiscent. Again, you were present for this, I think. I remember Joe Johnson once telling this uh, story about Alex Higgins, Joe himself, and a giant rubber duck on a boat mm. out at sea. Think about that. That wasn't a dream. It all actually happened. So <laughs> even more remarkable than, uh, than Kyron's dream there. No, I, I must get Joe to tell that uh, on a podcast because the way Joe tells stories, like oh. just when just when you think the sort of the really funny bits come in, he, he ups the ante considerably. Uh, anyway, we're just we're just yakking here. Let's get let's get let's get on with it. Um, yeah. The other thing the other thing I wanted to mention was Alan McManus. Um, he's he's he has this blog which he sort of writes now and again, and he started to write a piece every week and. It is absolutely excellent. Last week he did a, a piece comparing Ronnie O'Sullivan and Stephen Hendry. This week he's written about what happens behind the scenes at, at the ITV tournaments, which of course he's, he's part of. And uh, very, very informative, nicely written. Um, 
have, don't have the address to hand, but I'm sure you can find it very easily. And hopefully Alan will continue to write it. Of course, he, like all of us, is hoping that the snooker will resume. The Tour Championship, because we're supposed to be at uh, back in, well, March now, wasn't it? Mm. And... We're waiting to see. There's been a few developments. Uh, Barry Hearn did an interview with our friend Nick Metcalf from the, from the Metro in which he said, uh, Barry, this is, uh, he's 90% certain the World Championship will happen. Now, I'm, I'm sure Nick can confirm this. I think the interview was done before the announcements on Sunday by uh, Boris Johnson. Um, so whether that will affect it, I don't know. But I do know, I'm just speaking to people, WST, that they are working hard at the moment and very confident they can get snooker on. At the moment, according to the new regulations, the earliest sport in the UK can resume is June the 1st. Of course, the Tour Championship and the World Championship at the moment are scheduled for July into August. Obviously, it's dependent, I guess, on whether the, the rate of infections is kept down. The, interestingly, though, yesterday, the, the government furlough scheme, paying people's wages, was extended until October, which suggests that you know they're not necessarily confident that things are going to drastically improve in the next few months. So it may be a slow process. We keep our fingers crossed. I'm told there may be some announcements in the next week or so, so we may discuss those next week. Could you use that furlough scheme to play the World Championship and get the government to pay 80% of half a million pounds to the winner? It'd be fantastic, (laughs) wouldn't it? I'll, uh, I'll message uh, Rishi Sunak uh, in a moment. Of yes. course, no one, no one had heard of until about two months ago. But he's he's the most famous person in, in Britain. The other thing as well, just my take on it from a very simple point of view, the big one that everyone's talking about is the Premier League football. And I mean, that's mm. one that's in the headlines every day. Surely the fact that it's even been talked about as a realistic possibility that the Premier League football could come back, surely that means snooker must be doable. Because, I mean, it's it's a, surely football would be much, much, much more hazardous in terms of the nature of the sport it is so if that's even being considered as a possibility surely snooker is going to be back on soon you would think anyway but we'll see well barry said and let's be honest he's got a slight vested interest he said yeah. the two the two sports that he thinks um you know are best suited to coming back behind closed doors are snooker and darts now obviously he runs both he runs both of them but actually you can see his point Football is a physical combat sport. You know, I mean, rugby union they're talking about coming back, which is even more physical. Um, it's going it's, it's to be, be hard for those sports, I think. Snooker, I think, is more controllable. But it's got to be safe. This is the point. You know, we don't want to come back and something awful to happen. It's got to be safe. And if it is, then, you know, hopefully it'll happen. Mark Williams was saying, uh, he did this Instagram chat with Stephen Hendry, and he said, you know, I don't really want the World Championship to be on without a crowd. He, he made the point, you know, say it's nine each in the first round, they bring the wall up because the other table's finished and there's no one sat on the other side. But the other side of that is, well, you know, the, the other option, Mark, is to still be sat at home doing nothing. Um, He'd and probably of course, prefer that. Well, funny enough, he, this is the other thing he said. He said he, he actually... Being at home all this time and not being able to go out and, and not being able to play snooker has made him now feel that actually... You know, he's just going to plough on and, and not sort of retire if he falls down the rankings. He, he's going to do a Steve Davis and just sort of cling on as long as he can. So maybe it's been a bit of perspective in, in that sense. But it's worth saying as well, and not, not picking on Mark at all, but there are players at the top of the list who have earned a lot of money in recent years and they can sort of ride through this storm. Yeah. You know, maybe, but there's players down the list who are relying on, the, on tournaments like the World Championship with big money, specifically that tournament to potentially pay their mortgage, their, you know, all their bills, to keep their heads above water. So when people say, oh, it's, you know, it shouldn't all be about money, okay, fine, but people have livings to earn. And there are players, we know this down the list, who are not earning a lot of money. And if there wasn't a World Championship, it would be a big blow to them. All these things, of course, are still to be discussed and we'll keep you up to date with any developments. Now then, let's uh, just go to a couple of emails. Thank you for 
all the emails. I should say we've had a couple that I'm going to discuss at a future date because they're quite interesting and I want to devote more time to them. So Chris Bogan and Edwin O'Shea, um, your emails we will come to maybe next week. But we start with Scott McCarter. He's saying, I wanted to pick up something you and Michael said about which era is better. I was not here for the boom in the UK in the 80s, so maybe biased. But while the 80s gave huge exposure to the players, the fact is the standard was a lot lower. I also think a lot of people watched because it was on the telly in some cases. Take my uni friends, for instance. When I tipped Mark Williams to win the World Championship in 2018, nobody believed me because he'd not been in a big event, in inverted commas, on the BBC for a long time. In other words, what he's saying is, of course, they didn't see him win the tournaments on Eurosport. Um, the, the, the email goes on a bit longer, but to what he's saying is he thinks snooker has, has got better, and I, I don't really think that's an argument to be had. It just has, hasn't it? Oh, there's no question about that. And he, he summed it up perfectly there. I mean, it depends on the context. If you're talking about what was the golden age, in terms of standards, it's unquestionably now. As you say, it's not even a discussion. But if it's in terms of the profile of the game in the UK and the status of the players and all of that, then equally unquestionably, it has to be the 1980s. I do think, though, if you go back 20 years, early 2000s, I think the standard then at the very top in terms of the players is certainly as high as it is now. Mm. Um, maybe not the strength in depth in terms of going yeah, down the rankings. Yeah, that's difference, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but you know, it's not like this sort of someone's flipped a switch and, it's, and the standard's gone up that much. Anyway, um, I'll move on to Stephen Forbes. I'm going to read out. It's quite a long email, but quite an interesting one. Although on, on my <laughs> my phone, the type is so small. So I hope I'm, I don't uh, – oh, actually, I can't enlarge it. Anyway, you can tell the preparation for this podcast. <laughs> it's really, it's really, really uh, considerable. Anyway, Stephen writes – before I ask my quick question, I wanted to take this opportunity to say how much I appreciate the regular podcasts. I suffer in silence from depression and I've been social distancing long before it was a requirement. But I always attend at least one of the major snooker events in the UK each year. I find it to be perfect means of escapism to be completely absorbed in the atmosphere of the venues and the host towns and cities, to be transfixed during the long tactical battles or enthralled by exhilarating break building. Snooker has always been something to look forward to during dark times. Furthermore, when at the venue... I find your commentary to be an essential ingredient of the overall experience. I do, of course, ensure the volume is low enough so as not to distract the players, although trying not to laugh at certain times can be a challenge. Well, not when I'm on, because I never say anything funny. Um, he goes Either on. in the box or out of it. All right, all right. <laughs> so I, he goes on. I must also compliment how welcoming and accessible the sport is. Everyone I've encountered, be it tournament organisers, commentators or players, have all been personable and approachable. It's an element of the sport that I will never take for granted but remain grateful for nonetheless. The wide range of fascinating topics featured in the Snookerzine podcast really does serve as a lifeline to this life-enhancing sport we all love dearly. Indeed, if you ever decide to move on to the Patreon membership platform, you can count on my subscription. My question, if I may, is which players do you think would be adversely affected from the World Championship taking place behind closed doors, or any ranking event for that matter, in that they are perhaps more energised by the crowd? Conversely, are there certain players you believe would thrive in the absence of spectators, perhaps less nervous, without the added intensity that a watching audience can often bring to the occasion. Once again, sincere thanks for the podcasts and your commitment to the sport. If only WST would promote the podcast. In fact, it really should be the official w WST podcast, so long as you're able to retain creative license. So that's uh, Stephen Forbes from the West Coast of Scotland. Well, a few points here. Um, firstly, I'm glad to hear that everyone at Snooker has been nice to you. I think uh, most people at tournaments are helpful. It is a down-to-earth sport. It's a sport, I think, where 
even the stars by and large don't act like stars. You know, they they retain that sort of that sort of ordinariness, which is great. And I think people everyone understands that the fans are an important part of the sport. Um, just a couple of things that you mentioned. I won't be. I'm not going to go down the Patreon page asking for money because it doesn't actually cost anything. Well, it, there's a very small sort of hosting fee, but you know, no one's forcing me to do this, and we're not we're not getting paid for this. Michael, if you're wondering, <laughs> what? Yeah, no, I, I, sorry, sorry. The checks are slow in arriving. Yeah. He doesn't have to wait for us to do that. If he wants to, he can just send us the money. You know. We'll no, no, no. We, we, we're not. It's not. I haven't worked for a couple of months, but it's not quite that desperate yet. And I should say, yeah, exactly. I should say, I should say, um, I, I, I don't want to uh, do the WST podcast because you wouldn't have any freedom to to talk about them or any, or anything else. Also, it should be said they have their own, although it, it seems to have. Uh, Seems to have gone quiet of late. In terms of your main question, um, the players, who it would benefit, who it would adversely affect, I guess, I mean, the, the only sort of criteria we got to go on really is Gibraltar. Um, they had they had a very small crowd the first day and then didn't let spectators in. We ended up with Judd Trump against Karen Wilson in the final. It was a great final. My theory is the cream kind of always rises to the top. It may be that the debutants who... Coming into the Crucible, you know, I've had in years gone by, I've had that sort of, I guess, dread and fear and excitement and adrenaline. I remember Ken saying when he played Steve Davis on his debut, he said I was four nil down and I was just looking around the venue. I wasn't even concentrating on the match. Maybe that would go away without the crowd. So maybe it would, in theory, favour newcomers. But you could also argue, I guess, that the seeds who are always the top sixteen seeds are always banged under it in the first round, playing the hungry qualifiers you could maybe argue that they would be a little bit more relaxed because it wouldn't seem um, so intense. I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. I think, I think the best players kind of win under any format, don't they? Uh, yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. I don't think it would make a great deal of difference either way. Um, I think that, you know, as you say, the favourites would still be the favourites. I think what would make more difference would be the fact that, you know, you're going to have a lot of players, if it takes place in the scheduled dates, who won't have played a tournament for four or five months. And if you're a top 16 player who isn't involved in the tour championship if that takes place then literally you won't have played since maybe february or march obviously mm. players who come through qualifying will have played in that a couple of players that might favor and this is just a, a bit of a punt really i'm taking here but you look at scott donaldson who was one of the lowest ranked players in the championship league which had a really strong field this season now that's played without any spectators there as a matter of course and he won it at his first attempt so you could maybe read something into that and say he thrives on that situation martin gould as well has won the championship league twice and that's pretty much out of proportion really with the rest of his career now i know you could also say he won at the tempodrome so he can certainly cope with the crowds but that would be the only thing that you could go on and i don't even think that really can read too much into so i i kind of agree with you on that one i don't think it would make a great deal of difference in terms of who you would expect to do well and, and who you wouldn't no and the bottom line is crowd or no crowd if, if the world championship's on they're going to be playing for half a million first prize that's right. going to fo- focus a few minds you know on both sides of the uh, of the argument um it'd be interesting i think that and i kind of i think i've said this before but i think that the problem, if you can call it a problem, if you win the World Championship and indeed the half a million, is whoever wins it this year, if it is on in August without a crowd, forever, probably in Chris's almanac, they're going to have the asterisk next to their name mm. pointing out that it wasn't the same. Because that, that audience at the Crucible, the fact they're so close and that they make the atmosphere, it is a factor in the tournament. And if you take that out, you've still won the tournament and you've started to play great to do it. It's just not going to be the same, whether that's, you know, Judd Trump winning it again or Scott Donaldson, for example, winning it. It's just not quite going to be the same. And that's, you know, unfortunate, but can't be helped. 
Yeah, I always wanted growing up to go to an FA Cup final. And the first time I did was in 2003. And that image I'd had growing up that it was going to be at Wembley on a sunny day. Well, it was in Cardiff on the day. It was absolutely chucking it down and the roof was closed. So it was like, you know, this dream I'd always had of going to an FA Cup final. It's great to be there, especially as Arsenal won it. But it wasn't quite how I'd pictured it. And imagine that if, if that was the one time you won the world championship. I think mm. you would always you'd be obviously so pleased you'd become a world champion, but it would be there somewhere in your head that didn't really fulfill your dream in quite the way you'd expected to. So I think that would make a difference. But look, again, it's like all these things it comes back to. Would you rather be a one time only world champion with nobody there watching or never win the world championship at all? No discussion to be had there. Exactly. And and it's, you know, there are extraordinary circumstances. And I keep going back to what I was saying. I personally, I would like the world championship as long as it's safe to be on rather than not be on. One more email before we move on. Teddy Wainwright writes. And by the way, the email address I should probably give out in case I forget, if you want to get in contact about anything, is snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. Teddy Wainwright writes. I discovered snooker rather late, around 16. I started playing became my life playing every day in three different clubs. But though I've dreamed of crucible glory like most, like most, my main dreams that I've physically had have been about snooker journalism, seeing as I've, that's what I've studied at college. Is there any advice you could give me about how to get my foot in the door? Well, <laughs> I get asked this quite a lot from, from uh, people, uh, students in particular. To be honest, there's no one way to get your foot in the door. If you've studied journalism, that's a great start, obviously. Um, and, of course, these days it's not just written journalism. It's all the digital stuff as well that can put you in good stead. There are things you can do. There are things people have done. And, and World Snooker, and it may, it may not be the same at this year's World Championship for reasons that we've already discussed, but quite often they will take in a student or a, a young journalist to help out. So they'll do cuttings and they'll do various sort of things in the press room for three or four days maybe. And that has been a routine for some people. There's the guy who runs the media operation, Ivan Hershevitz, um, he's the, the overlord of the, of the World Snooker Media uh, thing. And he, before he got that job, which he's been doing nearly 20 years now, mm. he, was a lo- he was a local newspaper journalist and he took it upon himself to, because he loves snooker, to try and write some articles uh, about Ronnie O'Sullivan in particular because he was kind of a London paper. And he would come to the Crucible on the odd day. And, of course, what that meant was he got known by people in the game, got known by the governing body, and then he got employed by them. So that, that was a way in for him. Matt Hewitt, our friend from, of course, Ram Pro Snooker blog for many years, got himself known in the same way. And, of course, he's now working for the WPBSA. So, unfortunately, in terms of written journalism, you know, newspapers in Britain, as we know, are not mad keen on snooker it's hard but there's things you can do you can start a blog you can get your name out there and and you know as i say maybe approach the governing body try and get yourself in um but there's no one route in this is the the truth i mean i got i got in i got in because i i worked initially for the wpbsa um you obviously a more general sports person but with a passion for snooker as well yeah i mean just generally be at tournaments i mean that's how we both got the opportunities we did mm. you, you were press officer and for a couple of years and then clive i think asked you didn't he did, did you want yeah. to sort of jump over to the other side of the fence and it's the same with me i started going to the irish masters and picked up bits of work there and then you get known by the regular snooker press and then you get offered a couple of other little bits along the way and it sort of builds up that way and i think actually he mentions there doing uh, dc he's a journalism student who was a journalism student yeah yeah I, I think i'm actually the only sort of regular snooker journalist who actually did a journalism degree because you did english and i think phil did english as well and uh no, so, phil, no phil, phil did um politics 
Oh, politics. That was it. Yeah. Well, that was certainly useful for working in the snooker world <laughs> in the 2000s. Um, so, yeah, so it just shows you, you know, and I've always said that about journalism. I've, I was very glad that I did the journalism degree and, you know, it, it actually helped me in a lot of ways. But it doesn't have to be that way. That I mean, I know people who've prospered greatly in journalism, especially sports journalism, who didn't get any uh, college qualifications in anything, let alone journalism. So mm. if you've got the ability and the enthusiasm and a lot of patience and a little bit of luck along the way, then uh, it can happen for you. <laughs> Absolutely. Good luck, Teddy. Now then, before we move on to our main topic, now this this is a real tweet. You can look it up. It sounds because people know I've got a bit of a thing about the Triple Crown, so-called Triple Crown. But I had a tweet yesterday, and it's even more suspicious because the name is kind of – it's not a name. It's MSL. There's no picture. But they've tweeted in, and I and this is the tweet. In your opinion, is, is treating the UK Masters as belonging to this fabled Triple Crown and describing them extra value – still legitimate when the snooker season offers up at least half a dozen tournaments of equal scope to them. Well, here's the thing, okay, here's the thing. Those three tournaments, the World, the UK, the Masters, yes, traditionally they've been banded together and called the Triple Crown. That is true. But they were never intended to represent the Grand Slams in tennis or the majors in golf. That's only something that's happened really in the last few years. And Let's be honest, it's happened because of the BBC. So the BBC can say, well, look, there may be 25 tournaments now, but we've got the three biggest tournaments. Or to put it another way, they could say, you know, we may only show three tournaments, but they're the only three that really count. And it's not true. You know, there's lots of really big tournaments. Neil Robertson, I was at the Masters, and he lost in the first round this year, Neil. And he said, he was in the press conference, he said, when he lost, he said it didn't hurt as much as it might have done five or ten years before because there's always another big tournament for big money just around the corner. And, of course, he went immediately on to win, I think, two of the next three. He was in three finals in a row and sort of cleaned up in that period. Now, the BBC are entitled to market their tournaments however they want. And we should and we should remember the BBC have been very important for the game. They've stuck with snooker through thick and thin for over 50 years, particularly, you know, 20 years ago when there was all the horrible politics there was nearly the split they stuck with snooker and they're very important to the game in the UK. But what annoys me about this whole thing is actually WST, the governing body, their sort of complicity, because I think they've gone too far with it. They're branding events as the Triple Crown series. Well, it's not a series. You know, Stuart, there's actually three different formats of tournaments. Stuart Bingham was 14 in the world when he won the Masters. There was no guarantee he would get to the Crucible without having to qualify. It's not a series. You could argue it slightly undermines the other broadcasters who are putting money in and, and covering a lot of other tournaments to keep the interest going around the year. And all this business of putting the little crown on the waistcoat. I mean, is it, why not just go the whole way and just wear a crown? <laughs> if, it's such, if it's such a walk in, walk in wearing a crown, if it's such a big deal, you don't see Tiger Woods literally teeing off wearing the green jacket, do you? Also, what does it say about a global, what's supposed to be a global game? If the governing body wants its three biggest tournaments all in the same country, you know, when the BBC had four tournaments, they said there were four majors. I actually found a BBC website report where Mark Williams won the LG Cup. 2003 and he said he was the first player to hold the game's four biggest events since Stephen Hendry and when it, when it was 1990 all of a sudden they've got three so it's a triple crown if they had two it'd be the double you know yeah. and all that's fine if that's what the BBC want to how they want to market their events of course they're absolutely entitled to do that put money in they're entitled to do that I, I'm just mystified why everyone else goes along with it seems to me these days you can sell anyone anything if you mention it often enough and that's not to deride the achievement of winning the tournaments Great achievement to win these tournaments. They've got a lot of history. They're big events. The point is winning any tournament is an achievement and more and more tournaments have come on board that are worth winning, not just those three. 
So earlier on in this podcast, we were starting a groundswell of public support for this to become the official World Snooker podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Ten minutes that last. It's completely out the window now. Yeah, I agree with what you say. I think it's the ultimate compliment, actually, to the quality of all the other events that people have felt the need to do this. You know what I mean? Because I think it's a recognition that there are so many other great events now that there's been this attempt to set them apart. I think we'd have a lot more credibility if the UK still had the pre-2011 mm. format. Um, it's hard to see now, apart from the obvious history, how the UK is better than or even equal to some of the other tournaments outside of it. Uh, so it's it's a very fair point, and I think it's just something that's been said so many times now that people sort of assume it's something that's been around forever, but it, it absolutely hasn't. And there have been various attempts to do this over the years, and I think it was when Peter Middleton was in charge of what was then the WPBSA, or maybe WSA as it was at the time, he decided there were going to be four Grand Slam events, and I don't think the Masters was one of them. Uh, <laughs> and I'll tell you what was one of them was whatever the tournament in Thailand was called at that time. It might have been called the Asian mm. Open, Thailand Open, whatever. And he gave those events extra points, um, which you know there was no real reason to because there was no particular reason why that tournament in Thailand was any better than say the Welsh Open or whatever. And that was a very short-lived thing. A season or two went by and. Everyone sort of forgot that happened. And, and now there have been attempts to sort of compare it. I think it was like when Ronnie got to maybe 18 Triple Crown events, as it were, and people were saying, um, oh, he's level with Jack Nicholas and he's you know, <laughs> a few behind Serena Williams. I mean, as Clive says, how many apples make an orange, you know? So um, it is it is a bit contrived, but it's something that seems to be here to stay, largely because the governing body are now very much behind it all, as you say, with the whole Triple Crown series. And uh, it, it's something that even the players talk about now in, in that sense. But uh, look, we'll come back to what Ronnie O'Sullivan said the morning after he won the World Championship for the first time. He had won a lot of other big events. He'd won the UK a couple of times. He'd won the Masters already. The way he put it, in snooker, there's just one the business tournament. And that is the thing. You know, you can try to put these groups together of these are the standout events. It's the big three, the big four, whatever. Ultimately, there's one real true standout event. The Masters is is, is, is coming on a huge amount. It's got its unique format, the brilliant setup it has now, and the fantastic crowds at Alexandra Palace. But as I say, it's hard to see now why the UK anymore should be included in that. And uh, I think people who really follow the game, that they do understand that actually all of these tournaments are significant to one degree or another. And it, it certainly isn't just about the big three. And I think if you asked most players, would you like to win sort of two home nations events or, you know, maybe one UK, they'd probably rather get get the two titles. So something maybe to ask the players about on how they feel about it. Yeah, Peter Middleton, by the way, who used to very well, he briefly ran the WPSA. Yeah. It, it, it transpired he was a former spy, <laughs> which is a whole other topic. Uh, yeah, my, listen, I, I maybe go overboard a little bit, but it annoys me a little bit because I, I work on pretty much every event, and you know they're all hard to win. They're they're all in their own way special, um, and I just feel when you get to one of the BBC events, it's kind of. I don't know, it's elevated maybe a little bit too much. But anyway, people will have their own views. If you disagree, if you agree, whatever, get in touch and uh, tell us where we're either right or wrong. Now then, uh, where are we now? We've been going half an hour, so it's time to get into the main topic of the, of the podcast, which is this business of the top 10. So Barry Hearn was asked, I think, by Eurosport last week to name his top 10 players. It seemed quite a personal list. He was just saying players that I think that he liked to watch. And this is the thing. So we're going to do our own top 10s. Yeah. But it's important to clarify what our criteria actually is. For me, it's the greatest players of all time, the 10 greatest. The main part of that is the actual achievement of what have you won. 
that's the main thing. Obviously, other things come into it as well. Influence and importance uh, is part of it. Also, special circumstances, maybe where you've come from and, and what you've achieved. But sure. the main, but the main thing is achievements. I think we're all sort of drawn naturally to the eye-catching players as well. Maybe they get extra points. But it's not the ten players, for example, that I'd most like to watch. If it was, I'd put Tony Drago in there. You know, equally, it's not the ten players who I, I like most as people. It's not about that. It's about the careers. It's hard to compare eras. At the end of the day, it, and people get very angry about this stuff. It was quite a, quite an intense discussion last week. At the end of the day, it really is just a pub argument. Of course, at the moment, we can't go to pubs, so we're having to do it. We're having to, we're having to do it on this podcast. Um, so I'm going to start. I'm going to do. I'm going to do it in reverse order, ten to one, very briefly. Um, explaining why, but but here's the thing about this argument. Actually, personally, I think the top five is really easy to come up with. I think the top five players, in some order, the order is up for grabs, and we'll get to it in a moment. I actually think if those five are not the top five, then maybe have another look. But anyway, here's my here's my top ten. One final thing to say before I launch into it. Always with these things, it's about who you've left out. That's the first thing anyone says is, why not so-and-so? The answer to that is because I'm about to pick 10 names, not 15. So these are the 10 I've come up with. Number 10, Jimmy White. Jimmy White's career obviously has, in recent times, come to be defined by not winning the World Championship. Jimmy White won 30 tournaments of various types, big and small, Masters included, UK Championship, 10 ranking events. And for a period... Of a good few years, he was probably the second best player in the world behind first Steve Davis and then Stephen Hendry, of course. And, of course, being second best player in the world, it, you know, when you get to the Crucible, means you're going to be runner-up. Um, I think the World Championship maybe throws too big a shadow over the rest of the sport. And, OK, he didn't win it, but he got to six finals. That's not bad going. And he was a fantastic player in his day. He was one of the first players to really entertain in, in sort of important moments in matches. He was the Judd Trump of his day, I guess. And yeah, he's in my top 10. We did a thing last year, um, myself, Alan McManus and Hector Nunns for, for World Snooker on their YouTube channel, um, where we had to pick the top 10 of all time. They gave us 20 names we had to pick from those. And Jimmy was wrestled out by the other two. Well, I'm wrestling him back in. He's at number 10 for me. Number nine, Neil Robertson. Now, Neil has won, I think, 18 ranking events. He's won at least one tournament every year since 2006. He's come as well from Australia. He didn't have the, the sort of traditional British upbringing with all the tournaments and all the clubs and everything. And he has achieved beyond his wildest dreams, really. You know, world champion, he's been world number one. What hasn't he won of any importance? And I think coming from another culture and making it in the way he has kind of enhances his status as well. Also, of course, that 100 centuries in a season, I mean, that, that, that gives him points. So he's at number nine. Now then, what? when I was thinking about doing this, the first question I asked myself is, has Judd Trump earned his place in the top 10 yet? And he has in my list. He's at number eight. Uh, of course, he's still only 30. He could easily rise up this list equally. He could fall back if he doesn't you know, keep on doing the business. But you look at what he's done, 17 ranking titles. I know there are more tournaments now, and that's why comparing eras is difficult, but they're not easy to win. And, and to have that that uh, incredible sort of clarity of mind this season as world champion, to step up and say, OK, I've become world champion. I'm not going to rest on my laurels. I'm going to try and clean up. And having done that, very, very impressive. His, his ability is beyond question. His talent is so eye-catching. And I think from what he's achieved so far in his career, he absolutely deserves to be in this top 10. So he's at number eight. 
Number seven is Ray Reardon. Now, obviously, he played in a different era with fewer tournaments when the game was different and the standards, you could argue, were not as high. But he was the best player by far of that era. He couldn't have done much more. He won six world uh, titles. He also won a lot of kind of the smaller tournaments that have been long forgotten. He was, you know, people talk about Alex Higgins in that era, you know, understandably as the, the most exciting player. But Reardon was sort of headmaster figure and he was the best player. No two ways about it. And a lot of the players that came along, particularly the Davises and, and those kind of guys, really looked up to him. He was, I guess, in a way, the sort of first professional. He won the first pot black. And in that era, he was the best player. So he, he gets in at number seven. Now, the next player, this this was actually, he could have got in the top five, but he's a number six. Mark Selby, um, you know, three world titles, all the rest, world number one for four years. Has a certain um, game, I think, that could have lived in any era He's because he's got different sides to his game. And for me, I, I can't see why he wouldn't be in the top 10. And then, as I say, the top five for me, I'm going to rattle through them because I don't even need to explain why sure. they're there. Number five is Mark Williams. Number four is Steve Davis. Number three is John Higgins. Number two is Stephen Hendry. Number one is Ronnie O'Sullivan. If you'd have asked me this five years ago, Hendry would have been number one for me. I just think O'Sullivan, his longevity actually is perhaps the deciding factor for me. I know Hendry's won more world championships, the level on ranking titles. Well, we're not going to go on about the Triple Crown again, but O'Sullivan has actually just edged on that score across the centuries. I mean, over a thousand centuries. And I just think about some of like the breaks he's made. I mean, he made that maximum against Ding at the, the Welsh Open a few years ago and, and that last red that he posited left-handed. And, and just what he's been able to do as a snooker player, I think actually does put him above all the others. So just to... Clarify my top 10 again. Number 10, Jimmy White. Nine, Neil Robertson. Eight, Judd Trump. Seven, Ray Reardon. Six, Mark Selby. Five, Mark Williams. Four, Steve Davis. Three, John Higgins. Two, Stephen Hendry. One, Ronnie O'Sullivan. Over to you. Yeah, well, we've actually got the same 10 players, uh, <laughs> which I thought might happen, but they're in a different order. And we didn't originally because um, I had, I'll say that I had Ding John Hui at number 10. Now, and I looked at my list and I actually realised there are only 10 players, you know, who've won 10 ranking events. And mm. they were the 10 players I had. Ding, obviously, is one of those. But then I had a bit of a rethink. And it was someone you were talking about at great length there, Ray Reardon. There's absolutely no doubt if there'd been anything like the same level of ranking event action in the 70s as there was in the 80s. Ray Reardon would easily have won 10 ranking events, probably 20 or 30, in fact. And... OK, the standard in the 70s were, was nowhere near as high, but it, it was it was starting to come up and he was such a fantastic competitor. You described it well there, the sort of influence, the the impact he had on his opponents and other players. So I think on that basis, he deserved to be in there at number 10. And the fact that he was still a very good player well into the 80s, actually, getting to the world final in 82, winning a ranking event. I think he was 50 by the time he won that, uh, when we'd really moved into that, uh, that 80s era. So I think he's... Um, I think he deserves his place, so he knocks Ding out. Uh, the other player who was very close to getting in, incidentally, was Sean Murphy, but couldn't mm. quite make the case for him being part of it. Jimmy, again, I absolutely agree. And in fact, I've put him one place higher at number nine. I mean, you think around, people t think of him as an 80s player. He was far better in the 90s. And in 92, you, you, ask, you t say Jimmy White 1992 to people, they'll think of two things. They'll think of the maximum, and they'll think of losing the 10 frames in a row to lose the final. But he won four ranking events that year at a time mm. when that was unbelievably hard to do. Uh, Neil Robertson, number eight. Well, you've outlined all the things with him there. Absolutely, he deserves to be in. Judd Trump, again, I've put one place higher than you. Uh, I've got him at number seven. And you said um, if you've been doing this list five years ago, you would have had Henry at number one. 
I'll predict now, if we're doing this again in five years' time, hopefully the lockdown will be over by then. <laughs> if we get back to regular tournament action, no guarantees, but my expectation is Trump will be much higher on this list. I'd say he could be fourth, even third, because that's what, what I anticipate he's going to do. You consider he's won, what was it, nine ranking events in about 16 months? Mm. That's just a staggering achievement. And he didn't win any of them scrapping by any means. He played brilliantly in pretty much all of them. Now, this is where we diverge a little bit, because you said, maybe have a look again if these aren't the top five. Yeah. Well, they're not on my list. <laughs> um, so, but I'm not going to look again, because I did actually think about this for quite a while. So I've put Steve Davis at number six. And I'll tell you why I've done that, because I've put Mark Selby then at number five. I just think Selby is a player who is very, very like Davis in the way he plays the game. Brilliant all-round game. Heavy scorer. But but can mix it up and always seems capable of finding a way. And I just think he's better at it than Davis. I think there's very, very little in it, but I would just give it to him, edge, edging him out. So I'm going to put Steve down at number six. Mark Selby then at number five. Mark Williams, number four. Uh, put him there again. You know, I've just moved Williams and Selby up ahead of Davis. John Higgins is number three. This is an interesting one. I think if you've got anyone who knows what they're talking about to do this, this the one that would be a constant is John Higgins would be number three. Because nobody thinks he's as good as Henry or Sullivan, and everybody thinks he's better than everybody else in the game's history. So he goes in there at number three, and I, I don't—I would agree he's no—he's not as good as Henry or O'Sullivan, but he's not that far behind actually. Then this is the really controversial one, and I know it's almost seen as thought crime to say it nowadays. <laughs> but I'm putting O'Sullivan in at number two, a very, very, very close runner-up to Stephen Henry. And to me, I, I still just put Henry at number one because, you know. The reason I think Hendry still holds that record, he got the seven world titles playing the way he did with magnificent mental strength, saw him through on so many occasions. I think the reason O'Sullivan hasn't got the seven is because he doesn't have the same mental strength. We've seen him crack at the Crucible a number of times. 2006 against Graham Dot, he cracked there. I think he definitely cracked under the pressure of Mark Selby coming back at him in 2014. And the most obvious example to me, and there have been quite a few of them in recent years, was against Ali Carter a couple of years ago. I think Carter completely got to him, and that was why he lost that match. And that, for me, is just the one thing that makes the little bit of difference. People talk about the centuries a lot. and I mean, the thousand centuries, I mean, it's just a ridiculous achievement, absolutely. But I think a little too much is made of centuries, because ultimately, a 60 break, a 70 break, that's 99% of the time, probably, going to win you the frame as well. And I think if, I don't think there are any stats in it, but certainly you look at Henry's World Finals, my memories of them, or that he was making those sort of breaks on just the same regularity, if not more, than O'Sullivan was in the World Finals he won. So I, I think it's very close between those two. I just narrowly put Henry ahead. I've been involved in so many of these discussions across a number of different sports over the years, and there are two big problems with them. One is people start to talk about it as, as if there's a definitive answer. <laughs> One person is right, someone else is wrong. It's not. It's only a matter of judgment, and you know the value of your judgment depends on, on how much you know about it. And also the other thing, I remember a few years ago being involved in a much wider debate, who was the greatest Irish sports person of all time? And it was going along quite well, and it was developing into a good dis discussion. It was happening, happening over a dinner at a friend's birthday, and we got about three minutes into it. And then one guy sensed he was losing the conversation. So he started to impose these sort of arbitrary rules on the debate. <laughs> he then declared himself the winner on the basis of those rules. Mm. Um, so it's only ever an exchange of views. There's no definitive answer. I mean, what sport could you point to and say that there is one person who is definitely, indisputably the greatest of all time? You could say Federer. 
Some people might say Djokovic because he's won almost as many uh, major titles and has maybe won them in a harder era. That's an argument you could make. Even in darts, I've heard it said that Van Gerwen has actually taken darts to a higher level than Phil Taylor did. So people will make that argument. Very, very difficult to come up with a definitive greatest in any sport. Um, ultimately, all you can do is rely on your experience and your judgment. And anyway, it would be nowhere near as much fun if there was a definitive answer, because the whole point of it is to exchange views. And those are our views. So just just run down the top ten again, starting yeah. at ten. Ten Reardon, nine White, eight Robertson, seven Trump, six Davis, five Selby, four Williams, three Higgins, two O'Sullivan, and one Hendry. One of the, yeah, the, one of the reasons... I, this kind of discussion that I sometimes don't like is it, it sometimes comes down to people actually doing the opposite of what they should be doing, which is what they should be doing is celebrating these players. Quite often they're finding reasons to sort of downgrade one of them. Right. We're, talk, we're talking here about the pantheon of greats. Here's an interesting thing, though. So we came up with the same 10 players in different orders. These 10 players, actually, and I found this out after I wrote my list out, these 10 players have actually, are actually the top 10 players in terms of most titles won of all stripes, you know, ranking events right. and everything else. Even Reardon actually is in there. He's won 24 tournaments of various right. sorts. So actually we've come up with the most successful players. Now, of course, we, we must though um, spend just a couple of minutes talking about the players who didn't make it. You mentioned Ding there, who was certainly, you know, on my shortlist. Sean Murphy, absolutely. You know, Sean Murphy, um, is, I would say would be a good number 11 or 12 on this list. And of course, the other one that we haven't mentioned is Alex Higgins. Now, last year when, Myself, myself, Hector and Alan McManus did this thing on the World Snooker YouTube. Um, he actually edged Jimmy White out. And the reason was that he had, had won the World Championship, you know, won it twice uh, and a number of other tournaments. Um, people may be interested to know, though, why he's not in your top 10 and, and indeed mine. Alex Higgins. Mm. I, 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 I'd, I, don't, I wouldn't put him even nearer. I mean... You know, he didn't win that many tournaments. That's the thing. Now, of course, he won the Masters, he won the UK, he won the World. He did the Triple Crown, as you would say. And he would probably have quite gladly uh, worn a crown on his head playing in the arena on, until he pawned it for horse money or something. But, the um, yeah, I just don't think he was a good enough player to be in there. It's as simple as that. I, I know when at the, the old TSN 110 Sport website, they got a lot of the players, their own players, to come up with their all-time top 10 list. And one of them, I won't say who it was, but he had Alex at number one. I mean, there's just no way. Now, there's a whole other thing that the argument people always make, um, the impact that Higgins had. Now, if you were saying, if you were making a list of the 10 players who've had the greatest impact in the game's history, well, that's a different story altogether, and he's right up near the top of it. Uh, but I just don't think he's, he's been... If, if you look at how good a player he was... I mean, look... Could, could you argue that he was anywhere near as good a player as Ray Reardon when they played in the same era and Reardon you know, won um, six world titles and Higgins won two? I don't think you could you could make that argument. So I really don't see the uh, see, see the place for him in there. And, you know, pe people, I think sometimes when it comes to Higgins, bring in things, they talk about all the shots he took on and the way he excited crowds and all the rest. And all of that is true, but that's not what the game's about. That's not what makes you great. It might make you really popular, but it's not what makes you great. And, uh, that's why he's not in the list for, for me and for you as well. Well, yeah, I mean, I think I, I feel, and this was the argument I made last year, I think Jimmy was a, was a better player, definitely. Uh, but but one thing with Higgins was, I actually think he would have won more tournaments, but there was a, he had a sort of fatal flaw in his character. And we saw this in the world final against Cliff Thorburn. When he got a few frames in front, he would start to showboat. He had that 
that extra entertaining uh, sort of gene that he wanted to show off. And that definitely cost him. It cost him in that match against Thorburn. It would have cost him at other times. And that's leaving aside the whole sort of self-destructive personality as well, which obviously did cost him. He was always known as a great safety player. This is what people don't talk about. He could actually live in that era of the Rins and the Spencers and the Eddie Charlton's. He had that great um, tactical game that he needed in those days. But yeah, I mean, you know, we, we, these are our opinions. These are top tens in our opinions. And I feel that, as you do, that he do, isn't quite on the level of his, these other players. He would be certainly in. I mean, you said he wouldn't get anywhere near the top ten. He would. Be, he would be near for me, but he's. But the fact is, he's not in it. Well, um, when, I, when, I, when I said that, I suppose what I really meant was that he wouldn't be in contention for the top ten. But hmm. he might be. We'll say something like 16, 17, maybe something like that. Definitely. And I think it's important to say as well, you know, if, if you just picked up Ray Reardon from 1977 or something, put him into today's game, it's tempting to say that he would, you know, lose to a lot of players lower down the rankings. But you can't do that. It's a different era. In his era, he was the best player. He was more successful than Spencer or Higgins or Charlton, who were, the, I guess, the other big th- big four players of that time. Mm. And and as you said, you know, he had longevity. We talk about Ronnie O'Sullivan. Well, Reardon at the age of 50 won a ranking event, still the oldest so far to do that. So there our list. Now, of course, let us know. You know, you may agree, you may disagree. As ever, our doors are open, snookerscenepodcast at mail.com. And re- please remember this as well. Ultimately, this is just a bit of fun. It's not It's not designed for people to sort of, you know, roll up their sleeves and have a fight about. It is just opinions. And it's always interesting to, I think, hear people's choices. Some people have more personal choices. I think they, sometimes the problem with this is people start with a conclusion. They start with, OK, who's my favourite player? Where can I put them in the list, you know, that sort of reflects the fact that I like them? Which is fine, again, because it's just about opinions. But they are ours. And it's interesting because we didn't confer about this. We have the same players, just uh, in a different order. Quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I think a lot of them, you know, are, are automatic choices, really. In there, and there are only a few that you would have any real debate about. And as I say, Ding and Murphy would come come close to it. And it was only really later that I thought about putting putting Reardon in. But yeah, it, look, it's the same in any sport. It's so difficult to compare eras. It's like you're seeing so much now of this in football because you've got two of the clear greatest players of all time still in their prime, really, Messi and Ronaldo. So there are endless discussions as to where they rank against Pelé, Maradona, Cruyff, players like that. And it's just a different game, and it's just so difficult to uh, to compare for that reason. But, um, look, if it was easy, it wouldn't be any fun and it wouldn't be interesting, and we'd all agree who the 10 were, and mm-hmm. we wouldn't be able to get a podcast out of it. Indeed. OK, well, thanks for that. Now, uh, the, the feature, uh, the, now in its third week, Book of the Week, um, this week, uh, this is a great book. The last two I kind of was not that complimentary about in terms of maybe the, some of the writing or whatever. But this one, for me, if we were doing a top three snooker books, this would be in there. It's a book called Pocket Money by Gordon Byrne. Yeah. Uh, Faber and Faber, 1986. Gordon Byrne was a fantastic writer. He had an interesting snooker, but he wasn't a snooker journalist. He was just a, a great journalist, full stop. And he spent a year on the circuit, 1985-86, and if you're into, I mean, obviously this is over 30 years ago now, but if you're interested in what goes on behind the scenes, this is the book for you. All the characters, all the kind of, uh, exactly that, what goes on backstage. Because for me, like obviously, you know, I've worked in on the circuit. And for me, a lot of my memories of tournaments are nothing to do with the snooker. They're <laughs> to do with things that have gone on, you know, backstage in bars, whatever. Um, I mean, no names, no pack drill, but I mean, there was a tournament where one of our friends was literally chased down the street by a former world darts champion because it, because it upset him. You know, those are things you remember from tournaments rather than who beat who in the quarterfinals. And Gordon Byrne, 
brings a lot of that to life in a very vivid style. Obviously, Barry Hearn and Steve Davis are featured a lot. Clive's in there as well. Um, lots of the characters from that time. Of course, it ends with Joe Johnson becoming world champion. It's just a really well-written book. He, now, I was actually going to quote from it. and Unfortunately, I got the wrong book off the shelf. I got the book that he wrote about Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. So, <laughs> which I'm not, that instead. No, no it's, it's, it's grisly stuff. But, but again, but, it, but actually the fact that he can shift between you know those two sort of areas shows what a great writer he was. Sadly, passed away a few years ago. It was reprinted not so long ago. And uh, well, you've read it, right? Well, I've got it in my hand right now. Okay, oh, wow. You, well, you, you read from it then. Yeah, yeah. I, I knew it's, it's, it's here somewhere, and I just reached out my left hand, and there it was. And I'm looking at it now. It's a fantastic book, absolutely. So well thought of at the time. And on the back cover of it, certainly the edition I have, it's uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, tabloid newspapers, every one of which has a lead story mm. on the front page about snooker. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. My favourite one here is there's uh, it's it's split in half. There are two main headlines. It's you liar, and then there's a picture of I think uh, is it Jeffrey Archer, Michael? No, I think it's Jeffrey Archer, not Michael Heseltine actually, just to clarify that. Mm. Um, and then the other one is you liar, and it's Alex Higgins. I mean, you know, these were the people who were running the country at the time, and they are sharing the front page with the top snooker players. Well, well, Lord Archer, of course, as he became Jeffrey Archer, went on to yeah. be w, WPBC president just before his uh, just before he was sent down for perjury. <laughs> Do you know what? I've, I've had a closer look. I think it is Michael Heseltine. Okay. But but I don't think it's him actually being called a liar. I think he's saying that someone else is. So mm. there are uh, stories about Kirk Stevens, Ray Reardon, mm. loads about Alex Higgins, as you can imagine. But it was brilliantly thought of at the time, and rightly so. Donald Trelford, who was the editor of The Observer, had done one the season before called Snookered. And I thought that was really, really good. But this, this one about the 85-86 season uh, was actually a bit better. You mentioned that he was an outsider. He wasn't part of the snooker circuit. Mm. I think that's actually one of the great strengths of the book. Because yeah. if this had been done by, say, Clive, would have been an obvious person to do it. It would have been brilliantly written, brilliantly put together. Of course it would. But it wouldn't have had quite that sort of outsider's glimpse of it, which I think is, is the essence of the book. I remember, actually, um, very early on in my career, I was working in a newspaper. And there was a guy there who was a really, really good writer, but didn't know that much about sports. So quite how he'd ended up working in the sports department, I didn't know. And I, I figured out early on the reason he survived was because... He saw the sports that nobody else in the office claimed to be an expert on and claimed to be an expert on those himself, which was his way of surviving. And one of the sports was snooker. Now, he got rumbled a little bit when I came along, and obviously I did know a lot about the game. And I remember him saying, in, we were having a debate one day, he was, he was coming out with some absurd theory about something. It was all in good humour, of course. But he said, have you not read Pocket Money? And I said, of course I have. And he said, yeah, well, that proves what I'm saying, because Pocket Money is all about Joe Johnson's relationship with his manager, Barry Hearn. <laughs> have you read pocket money because barry never managed joe and mm. you know the, the book is only about joe at the end anyway when he wins the world championship i'd recommend both of those books but absolutely pocket money um fantastic and there was there, there was huge uh publicity surrounding it at the time and if you were looking to sort of sum up that era in snooker that we always talk about that the best way to do it would be to read that book Definitely. So it's Pocket Money by Gordon Byrne, uh, available from wherever you get your books from. I'm sure you can find it online if you haven't read it already. OK, well, that, that concludes the business for this week. Uh, just to remind you, though, if you want to comment on anything we've said or suggest future topics for discussion, and we have got a few, as I mentioned earlier, um, that we can talk about in future weeks, you can email us at snookerscenepodcast at mail.com and uh, we will uh, 
read through those and uh, continue in this uh, these strange circumstances during the lockdown. There, I guess looking forward to because we're sort of mid May now. We're about we're about midway between where the tour championship was supposed to happen and where it is now supposed to happen. If you, if that makes sense in July. There's sort of that light at the end of the tunnel that everyone is holding on to. Now, it still may be that, you know, things deteriorate and we can't hold those tournaments. But I don't know about you, that in terms of sort of keeping my sanity going, I am actually looking to those events as we get nearer and nearer. If we get into June, it'll be next month when the snook will be back. Are you there? Yeah, we seem to have lost Michael. Yeah, no, sorry, oh. yeah, you did, you did cut out there for a moment. I got oh. the gist of, of what you were saying. Yeah. I often wondered what it would be like to be a person, you know, whose life wasn't built around sport, you know, to not have those mm. landmarks. This is when the football season ends. This is when it starts again. This is when the Open is. This is when you have the Masters. This is when you have the Crucible. So now I know what it's like to live mm. life that way. And it's horrible, isn't it? I mean, it's, yeah. you know, it's it's not, it's, it all sort of just rumbles on. You need to have these signposts in your year, or certainly I do anyway. And absolutely, I mean, we're all just desperately hoping that, uh, that, that something happens soon. But again, I mean, there's no getting away from it. And a lot of people are trying to get away from it, I think. And you can understand why that you, you can't do these things until it's safe and, uh, you know, makes sense to do them. And there's just no getting away from that argument. So it's going to be very interesting to see over the coming weeks. I was interested to see what Barry said, that it's basically then or never with regard to those new mm. dates for the world championship and uh, I, I said that before i think if it doesn't happen then it won't happen at all but my gut feeling is on balance that, that that it is going to happen for the reason i said earlier that you know if you're even talking about football and rugby then surely snooker is no problem within that context but as you say qualifying now that could be the big issue i mean all those players in, in one venue and I, I don't know how do you do it do you reduce the number of tables and play the qualifiers over best of seven it's like all these things. It's not perfect, but if it's a choice between that and not doing it at all, then that's maybe what it may have to come to. Well, I think possibly by the time we meet again next week, we may have a few uh, announcements possibly, or maybe just a few bit of meat on the bones. In the meantime, we, well, we've been going nearly an hour, so uh, we better stop now. But thanks for listening. We will return next week. Sports Social Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.